0: Okay, so we've been chatting about, uh, I don't know, it's been such a random two months when people come and go, and I'm, you know, I don't know who's here and who's not, but we've been talking about some of the laws, the, thing, the commandments, the instructions, the judgments, and all that stuff, and uh, that's what we've been doing. So, tonight, who knows the first commandment? Oh, oh, oh. Sorry. I love the Lord your God and follow your own. Okay. So that's, well, that's the, that's not right, but that's thanks. That's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, wait, that is. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'll find out. No, 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 we no. We got, got it. We got it right here. I yeah. have it. Either protecting the garden or multiply. Oh, okay. oh, oh, you got a trick point. So that's the well. You know, we talked <laughs> yeah, <yeah>. about obeying <laughs> the on. the commandments, the instructions, oh, judgments, so statutes, and uh, of the Lord, and uh, we tend to uh, believe that to be the 10 commandments. And then when you talk to the rabbis, they tell you, no, 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 there's not just 10, there's 613. And depending on which rabbi you get, they come up with a different list of 613 because they needed to get to that number. They needed to get 613. So they picked a bunch of stuff. And if you read, I, I don't know how many people outside of rabbis actually have read the complete list of all the commandments of those 613. But the the most common list is by a guy called Rambam, and he's a 1200s rabbi or something like that. And he's assembled this list that most people use his list, but not all people use his list. But even his list, you could read it, and you seem to be reading the same commandment or the same instruction or judgment or statute or whatever several times. It's just phrased differently. And to me, I wouldn't have counted both of them if it's sort of the same idea, but phrased differently, because there's all kinds of instructions in there that aren't on the list. And I don't know that anybody's ever made a complete list of how many instructions of the Lord there are. But we spent the last, I don't know, four, five weeks, some some amount of time going through some of them and seeing where they have led us in the Second Testament and all that stuff. And I probably should have done this first, but... Uh, when we consider what the first commandments or instructions are, um, I would suggest, and and the first instructions given to us because the first instructions start in Genesis 1-2 where the Lord is commanding things into existence. So I'm not counting those because we weren't involved in that. But the first commandments to us, I think, uh, are recounted here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And it says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, which I would consider to be an instruction, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I would identify the very first instruction of the Lord uh, as he, as we're commanded to bear fruit. And that's from the word fruit, uh, peri. The word is para, but it's from peri, which is a word we've probably talked about before. It's a very cool word. It's spelled pereshud. It's P-R-U. And As with most Hebrew words, there's three letters. And the center letter is uh, sort of the father figure. And then the two letters on either side of that are sort of like the children. So this pe resh yud, the resh is the head. The pe is the mouth. The yud is the hand. So this idea of fruit is what you think is what you're going to say with your mouth and do with your hands. So it's important that you, you, you think correctly. You have to have a proper understanding of the things that the Lord would have for you, if excuse me, you expect to walk in his his path, to do the things he wants, and to say the things that he wants. So that's this word bear fruit. Uh, you know, you can think think say do. He also asks us to multiply. <coughs> And that's the word bara. It's uh, it means literally to increase or abundance, to shoot an arrow, to excel, uh, fill the earth is Malay, and it means actually to accomplish, to accomplish Yahweh's purpose. Subdue is the word kabash, and it's uh, uh, you know to control the earth or to be in charge. Which if you're in charge, if you're the king, if you're the guy controlling and running the whole. Shoot and match, then there is more to it than you just being the boss and telling what people to do. You have to you you have to run the affair correctly. So in in the case of running the earth correctly, that would include, I would think, um, things like taking care of, making sure you're not wasting and using and destroying things just the sense of doing it but using the things that the Lord has provided for the good of the purpose and in this case the purpose are the people so we're we're supposed to use everything that the Lord has provided in service of his ends not to destroy it not to abuse it not to overuse it not I guess the other side of that is Um, to understand that fish and animals and birds and plants are all important, but they're not as important as we are. We are God's children, and to elevate fish, plants, uh, whatever it is, birds, animals, to our status is as wrong as misusing it. So you see both of those things have gone on, certainly since these days. Today, more than anything else, you see where animals and spirits and fish and trees and all that have the same, or there are, there are groups of people who want them to have the same rights as we do. They see them as equal to us. And that, <coughs> excuse me, is absolutely not what the Lord would have. Then the fifth commandment is to have dominion, uh, which is radah. And it's it's actually a word that means to cover, like to spread a sheet and cover a bed or something, to cover it completely. So uh, the combination of these things with what we learned about Genesis 1-1, where the Lord is building a house and he wants to fill it with his son and his son's wife and children, and that's the whole purpose of uh, certainly Genesis 1-1, but that's the purpose of Scripture in general, is the Lord is building this house To bring into it his children and we call ourselves his children we're called in scripture his children and if we want to be a part of him if we want to camp with him if we want his grace and mercy we sort of have to be his children which means we have to more or less agree with him on more or less everything so when you when you look at those five commandments in, in view of Genesis chapter 1-1 and the original ideas in Scripture, you, you, could, you could read it, I suppose. Think, say, and do the things of Yahweh in order to excel and increase to accomplish Yahweh's purposes to rule over his creation and teach his instructions and cover the world like a blanket with his words. Our function, or the function I'm suggesting, the function that he gave to Adam and Eve and thus all of us, is this, is we are to present to the world the ideas and the actions of God himself so that we could cover the world with his uh, instructions and thereby bring children into his house. So if those are his first commandments, I would say his, his second group of commandments or the sixth commandment if you're counting, is found in Genesis chapter 2 of verse 16. And it said, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you shall not eat of it, for that in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. So if we look at that, and the Lord commanded, it's, it actually is this word, uh, two words, and it means to appoint over. So the Lord is appointing Adam <coughs> over the universe that the Lord has just created to do these things. And he says to Adam, of every tree of the garden you can freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one we need to avoid. So this idea of a tree, and we've, I think, talked about this before, it, it's, a, it's a whole study we did once just on the tree. The word is etz, and a, a tree, which is also the word uh, translated in English often as cross, so that's why you'll see uh, or hear some people who are typically people who are a little more familiar with the Old Testament or the Tanakh will, will talk about Jesus, Yeshua, and him being nailed to a tree. And there are even some translations that say that. The reason it says that is because that's the way it's, it's implied and written in the Tanakh, is it's this tree uh, and the tree is eight. The idea behind a tree is to get a tree, you have to have roots that grow a trunk, that have branches at the end of the branches or leaves, and then come the fruit and inside the fruit is the seed. And the seed has everything you need to grow another tree, just like the tree that you have. So that picture goes through uh, the Tanakh often, and it's kind of a big deal. Zara is the seed, and is the tree, and there's words for leaves and branches and all stuff. And, you know, if you remember from, from that lesson, all of those words mean things. But the only purpose for the whole tree, the entire event from the roots to the to the trunk, to the branches, to the leaves, to the fruit. The only purpose for all that is to get another seed so that you can produce another tree, just like the tree that the seed came from. So it's it's using that word, again, which is sometimes translated as cross. So it's this tree of the knowledge, and knowledge is da'at. In Hebrew, there are two words for knowledge. One is da'at, and it's the intimate knowledge. It's uh, Adam... Daat Eve and came up with Abel, so it's that kind of intimacy. So this tree of the intimacies of good and evil. Uh, tov, you you know you probably know tov, Mazel Tov, and all that. This word tov is from a word that means to be, uh, and evil is the word raw. It actually means to destroy or to spoil. So it's this tree. Adam is not to have an intimate relationship with this tree, quote-unquote, of uh, good and evil, to be and and destroy. It's this picture of the very, uh, the very intimate purposes of the world are to separate us from the things of the Lord. It's it's the opposite of the things of the Lord. It's the spoiling and it's uh and he's saying, Don't have an intimate relationship with those things of the world. Or uh, in that day you shall surely die. And in Hebrew it me, it, it it's actually written. The last two words of the sentence are muth-muth. It's the same word, which means death. So it means sort of, if you have this intimate relationship with these things of the world, you will die dead. This is, a, this is a bad thing. You don't, you know, anytime scripture uses the same word twice in a row, Martha, Martha, you know, it's, you need to pay attention. And you do not want to die dead. So in the garden, what you saw was them dying. You didn't necessarily see them dying dead because that would have been two deaths. You saw them die once. So they died spiritually. They were left physically cast out of the garden until the Lord could redeem them, return them to the garden. And that's what the entire book is about. It's about this redemption for all of us, the time that we can return to the garden and walk uh, with the Lord. So it 's interesting or it was interesting to me anyway, thou shalt not eat is the, the word a call it means to consume or whole or complete, but that word a call and if you remember in Hebrew words, every letter is a picture. so when you have Hebrew words that use the same letters, it it has some sort of a connected meaning because the pictures are still the same they 're in a different order, perhaps, but there 's got to be a connected meaning. It's not like in English where cat and hat and fat and stuff don't necessarily have any related meaning. But in Hebrew they would have to. Because if they use the same series of letters or some of the series of letters the meaning sort of has to be connected in one way or the other. So this, this word a uh, akal thou, which we read as thou shalt not eat. If you switch those letters around to kale you get the word for prison. And that's Actually, kind of what they're talking about here is if, is if Adam, Eve, if, if any of us are to have, develop, seek, desire an intimate relation with the things of the world, with these things that uh, spoil and destroy, uh, it will be our prison. And it will be a prison outside of the house of God so um, if you think about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil you know we we are handicapped a little bit because we have the flannel graphs that we grew up with and i mean i can remember um, when i was a very small child and mom used to take us into jc um at the end of summer before school started to get my new jeans husky jeans for fat boys and all this other stuff, there was always these these posters of an apple and some representation, perhaps, of Adam and Eve. You know, maybe a snake, maybe a bite out of the apple long before uh, Steve Jobs decided to use that as his... Uh, anyway, and I remember seeing that. And that's, you know, we didn't go to church. I had no idea. I mean, I knew enough to know that that was something from the bible and the ap- apple and you know i still to this day don't know how that relates to going back to school well, i guess apple teacher i, I don't know teacher, yeah, yeah whatever it seems kind of weak but you know it was the 60s it was a different time then um, but anyway we we were sort of handicapped by all these pictures we have of adam and eve in the garden and a tree and an apple and a snake and that's not not i would bet that's not how it is um I'm sure it wasn't an apple. It might not even have been a tree. I mean, it, these just represent ideas, but maybe it was a tree and maybe it was an apple. And did you show the picture up there? Mm-hmm. I, you can buy these at uh, Home Depot. You can't buy them here, but you can buy them in a lot of states. It's, it's a tree that they've grafted in other trees and it'll grow four different fruits. <laughs> That it seems like a great idea, but it's like, well, that's not right. That's not how God made it. But anyway, um, until we get to the end, in the book of Revelation, at the very end, you see the tree that has 12 different fruits, one for, you know, every month, and all that stuff. So maybe it'll look like that, I don't know, and maybe that's what it was, and maybe that's where the snake was, for the Nakash Nes- uh, was, and maybe that's where Eve was, and Adam was right behind her and she picked a delicious looking fruit and ate of it and gave it to him. And I don't know. But I, I, I kind of suspect that that's not truly the case. But I think we're handicapped by the pictures that we've grown up with. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we kind of miss the deeper meaning of the house that God is building that he wants to fill with his son and his son's wife and his children and how the way to... The certain way to avoid being invited to that house is by being intimate with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which are the things of the world. And as we look around the world, it's not hard for us to uh, draw that conclusion that the world is constantly inviting us, wants us to see and hear and do things that are sort of counterproductive to our relationship with the Lord. And that's In my mind, anyway, that's this whole picture in these first couple of commandments, if you want to say that, uh, that we find in Scripture. So if if we look at all that, you might look at it and say, "...thanks say and do the things of Yahweh in order to excel and increase, to accomplish Yahweh's purposes, to rule over his creation and teach his instructions, and cover the world like a blanket with his words." But if, on the other hand, you choose to intimately consume and embrace the things and the wisdom of the world, who, who you are will be destroyed and you will die dead. So the whole purpose of all this for the last number of weeks has been to take some of these quote-unquote commandments or instructions and judgments of the Lord and uh, maybe try to find out what they really mean, because we get wrapped up in reading the English. You can stone your son if he's being obnoxious. And we, we miss the biblical meaning of disobedience brings death. No one ever stoned their son because their son was a jerk. Most of us have had those days when we wish we could, but we never did. And it was, it was true back then. No one. There's no record that that ever happened. So as we read that in English, we think, oh, that's awful. That's just terrible. Why would they do that? When the Lord is trying to convey disobedience brings death. And it's a pretty simple idea, but we get wrapped up in the literal English translation, usually poorly translated of the Hebrew and the idea we had in the flannel graphs. And and sometimes we just miss the point so as as we've uh, looked about some of these things, my goal has been to take some random um, instructions and look at them and and try to open maybe a little dialogue in your own mind with you know you and and the word as you read the word, and it says these things it's it's not necessarily exactly how we read it because you read a lot of these things and that's where the idea comes from that Yeshua came to destroy these things because we read so many of them as wrong. You you can't stone your child for being a jerk. Children are jerks. That's just the way it is. So it's not right. And if it's not right, if just one of them is not right, then we look at the entire Tanakh and go, well, that's, that's not for me. That's just some Old Testament stuff that we shouldn't have to obey. And I've been suggesting for the last 10 or 12 years or so that these things should be obeyed and not because, not, not necessarily the way we understand them, but because we don't always understand them correctly. Nobody I know of would say it 's okay to stone your child to death for being a jerk, and yet every Christian I would ever talk to I would expect would understand that disobedience brings death so it we, we, it 's it's worth our time i think to understand that sometimes we read these things it's not, it 's not it's it 's not what he said it 's just how we 're reading it, and it 's a combination of how we grew up and what we are taught and the things that we see and the way we're reading it, and it leads us to this place that's inappropriate and wrong. If there's something we run into in, in the Tanakh that is uh, an affront to our um, common sense or, or goodness, then we should stop and try to find out what it really says, because I suspect we're understanding it incorrectly. And I'm not here to tell you I understand all of them completely or even most of them completely. But <clears throat> I, I want to present enough of them so that you will at least know that uh, just because you might get the wrong idea or because someone makes fun of it or says something wrong about it, that that's not necessarily true. So we've talked a little bit about... Um, that we can't be saved by obeying the commandments we obey the commandments because we are saved it's the the straw man is oh you have to obey the commandments to be saved you can't do that so that stuff must all be bad well that's not true they're not laws for one as we've talked about a million times they're instructions and they're instructions of what your life would look like if your heart was for God if remember the the fruit what you think is what you'll say and what you'll do so it's important that the things that we think line up with the things that the Lord said and the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the world is out there to convince us that those things are not true so the last couple weeks we talked about using uh, some of these instructions and statutes and judgments to change the dynamic of the law. And we used as examples, Matthew chapter 5, where he, he was, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, what was it? If he smites you on the right cheek, turn the other. And just like we were talking today about being out of Charmin, that's why they never used their left hand, because they didn't have Charmin. And that was, that was the Charmin hand. So anything you did, you did with the right hand. So if you're, if you're to be smote on the right, and it was specific, if you're to be smote on the right cheek, then by definition that means backhand. You're being slapped across the face. It's disdain. It's not a legitimate effort to damage you or hurt you or win a fight. So he says turn the other cheek. And that means he would have to hit you forehand, which is a totally different deal. You've changed the entire dynamic of the thing. And we talked about the you know, a guy sues you for your coat. If he's suing you for your coat, it's only because you have nothing mm-hmm. else. You are destitute. So give him your underwear too. Because if you're standing there naked in court and this guy's walking away with all your stuff, he's gonna look like an idiot. You've just changed the dynamic. Perhaps you deserve to be sued. Perhaps you've done something. Perhaps you haven't. He's suing you for your coat, which is ridiculous anyway. If that's all you have, why, why would you be sued? But anyway. And if he takes your underwear, I mean, if you give him your underwear, you're staying there naked, all of a sudden he's humiliated, not you. And it was the same thing with the, you know, the Romans had a law that they could command any Jew to take his pack. You know, they had these like 60 pound packs, a mile. Well, if you took the pack and ran two miles, then the Roman guy could be in trouble because his law was only a mile. You know, we don't want to abuse these people, but we want to show them who's boss. So you go the mile, he goes, you know, the, the Jew keeps taking off with the pack. Then the Roman soldier is chasing after him, saying, give me up. No, 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 come come back. You know, all of a sudden he's humiliated. So you take these instructions that are not laws. They are instructions, and you can use them to change the dynamic of who the Lord is and who you are and who his people are, if you, if you use them correctly. We talked a little bit about uh, who your neighbors are. Remember the, you know, the the Samaritan healed the guy and why the the priest and the uh, Levite couldn't. You know, he's on Jericho to Jerusalem. Guy got beat, uh, clothes taken, half dead. Priest passed him, couldn't do anything about it. Levite (coughs) passed him, couldn't do anything about it. The Samaritan came and did the right thing. And we talked about why the priest couldn't do it or why the Levite couldn't do it because they were probably on their way to work in the temple, had they touched this bloody man, they would have been defiled, they couldn't do their job, they probably had to make a decision, do I help this guy, which they probably knew would have been the right thing, and then become unclean and not be able to do my job for the next week, or do I just let it go? And I'm guessing, doesn't say, but I'm guessing that they both reasoned in their mind that it would be better to serve the multitude in the temple than this one poor guy. So the Samaritan comes, fixes him up, does what he could do. You know, you guys all know the story. Who was the neighbor? Well, it says this guy was. So it's it, it's not necessarily disparaging the priest or the Levite as much as it's saying what Mark 5 tells us. There's only one thing that can destroy God's word, and that is the traditions of man. And that's the whole point of this. The traditions of man have so handcuffed and twisted the word of God that neither this priest or this Levite could do the right thing. So as we talk about these uh, statutes and judgments and, and whatnot, think about all of the thing, and there's just, there's no way we could ever lay down all the baggage we have when it comes to what we've been taught about the Bible, especially the Old Testament. But it's, I think it's worth our time to try to just set down what we've been taught and just read it afresh and see what the Lord has for us. Because we may find that there are a lot of things like the Levite and the priest where the traditions of man have so skewed how we understand the word, we wind up doing the wrong thing. We don't help the guy who needs help. So um, we talked about that in terms of Neighbors, and we talked about the enemies. And every time, virtually every time in scripture, you read a commandment or a judgment or a statute or almost anything that's pertinent to us and our actions and our thoughts, it's fairly specific to a group of people, to the children of God, to the children of Israel, to the nation of Israel. It is not to the Ammonites and to the Moabites and to the Egyptians, to the outside world. These things are written to to us, to people who follow after the Lord. And to take what he says uh, and superimpose those words on the entire world is wrong. It says, love your neighbors. And if your enemy is thirsty, give him water. And if he's hungry, give him food. And all of these things we learn about If you look at the context, they are to your brethren, to the children of God. It's not to the outside world. You cannot, um, certainly there are enemies, but it's talking about the the people of God, that all of us have have had run-ins with other Christians, people who believe, people who follow after the Lord, and that's what he's talking about when he's talking about enemies, people we've done wrong or people who have done wrong to us that are within the, the general description of the followers of the Lord, of the children of Israel, the children of God. So when he talks about friends and enemies, it's within that group. We can't take those words and superimpose them and say, oh, oh yeah, yeah, when, when, when the Edomites come to kill you, we just need to give them water and give them a job and everything will be good. Because it's not going to happen, and that's not what they're saying. So, we talked a little bit about uh, John Stott, who said, Christians are not to be doormats. And then Charles Spurgeon, who said, we are to be the anvil to man's hammers. And... You know, I lived in Michigan for two unfortunate hellish years as a child, <laughs> and there was all kinds of antique stores, and, and you could find anvils, old anvils, several hundred-year-old anvils, and you could still use them. They look just like an anvil. You can pound on an anvil every day for hundreds of years and wear out, I can't tell you how many hammers, and people who, whatever you call them, uh, who... who blacksmiths. Blacksmiths, thank you, who used the hammers... And the anvil is still the anvil. And Spurgeon said, and I think it's a great idea, that we are to be the anvils to man's hammers. We are to be beaten and used, and, but we're not to be doormats. So, <clears throat> okay. So if we went to Leviticus 12, verse 3, it says, And the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be <laughs> circumcised. So we're all pretty familiar with that, right? You're supposed to circumcise all male uh, children, and you're supposed to do it on the eighth day, which eight is the number of new beginnings, so that's kind of interesting. Eight is also the, the eighth day is the, is the uh, time of life that a child has the most antibodies uh, in him, and his, his blood clotting factor is as high as it will ever be. So it's almost like God knew this stuff. But we, uh, we read about and we've heard about, and it's sort of a big deal sometimes, this whole idea of uh, circumcision. And for a while, it was a huge deal. There was groups trying to get it made illegal and you know it was torture to the children and all this stuff. And that has sort of died down. But this idea of circumcision and we're coming up on the Passover and one of the things required if you want to attend the Passover is that you be circumcised and there are groups not this one, just for the record not this one, there are groups that require you to prove your circumcision before you can attend the Passover well that's what the Bible says you have to be circumcised You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. But is that what it means? I mean, I've had, and I don't know why anybody would tell me this, but I've had people in this group, oh, I'm not circumcised. Please, I don't want to know. And I don't think it matters. The point is, is your heart circumcised? The picture is the cutting of the flesh, and you throw it away. That's exactly right. Are you willing to cut the flesh to, it goes back to this tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the world, the stuff. Are you willing to cut all that out of your life and dispense with it so that your heart is then for the Lord? And Paul, you know, obviously goes on about this in the, in the New Testament. Being circumcised or not being circumcised doesn't prove you are or are not saved, it's what's going on in your heart. Has your heart been circumcised? But again, this is one of these things and I've been trying to round up some of the problematical commandments. This is one that creates, I can't tell you how much animosity amongst people. Um, they don't think you know, that that should have to happen. That's torturing a child or and they're missing the whole point as often with most of the rules and laws and commandments and judgment and statutes. They're missing the picture, they're missing the point. The actual physical act doesn't save you or not. It, it might put you as a child on a path to believe that you are a child of God. It, you know, it might not, I don't know. Um, but it's always the picture. What is the picture? The picture is are you willing to cut your own flesh and throw that stuff away so that you can follow after the Lord. To, to cut the the junk of the world and the things that, you know, the world dangles in front of you to, to draw you away from the Lord. Are you willing to get rid of that and follow after the Lord? And as a side light to all that stuff, like a lot of these uh, commandments, instructions, statutes, we're not to eat pork. Okay, well, we all got that. We're not to eat pork. And in America today, we don't really understand that. Why can't we eat pork? It's healthy, it's inexpensive, it's low-fat, we should be able to eat it. Okay, all those things are true, but it, you know, for all of human history, pork has a bacteria and, and parasites in it that it needs to have because it's God's garbage truck, right? It eats, It keeps the earth clean. So it has to have these things in its body, and when we eat it, we get sick. So there's, there's a logical purpose to it as far as God sees, but it's a picture again. Well, it's the same thing with the, uh, the circumcision. If you're circumcised, then your wife runs a drastically reduced chance of getting any number of diseases from ovarian cancer to, you know, there's a whole number of things. And for eons... Jewish women never got these diseases to the extent that the secular world was so mad they would kill the Jews because they didn't understand why they didn't get these diseases that everybody else got. Well, they didn't get them because they obeyed the commandments and judgments and statutes of the Lord. One of those was circumcision. That keeps a woman safe and healthy in a lot of respects. One was you have to wash your hands after you touch a dead body. That prevented the Black Plague. So the Jews didn't get it. So the Christians would come in and kill all the Jews. There's If, if you obey the laws of the, of the Lord, often there is a, I don't know, a proof or a bonus. There's, you obey it and that's awesome. And the Lord appreciates your obedience and, and you know, you Learn to be more obedient by obeying these things and all that's awesome. But often there's a physical bonus. And it's just its just like it's how the Lord works things out, you know. You do what I ask you to do, and it will be good. And as an extra added bonus, not only will it be good, you won't get sick. You won't die of some dread disease, you, you know. Just because just, just I am who I say I am, that's kind of how the Lord works. Okay, so Paul talks about all that stuff as well anyway. Uh, let's go over to Numbers 15.38. And it says, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make for them fringes on the borders of their garments throughout their generations that they have put upon the fringe of the borders a reband of blue. So that's the tzitzit. And Jews were commanded... They're still commanded. Now, a lot of them do to wear these four tassels. They would tie them to the four corners of their shirts or a lot of guys today clip them on their belt. And it's, uh, you know, it's the Lord asked you to do it. And you ask the Jews why they do it. And their response is, well, the Tanakh says to do it. Okay, that's good. I'm down with that. But again, if you look at this verse, speak unto the children of Israel. You always have to look at the context, the content, who's being spoken to, who's doing the speaking. And it's, again, it's to the children of Israel. This is not to the world at large. This is to the people that follow the Lord. And the the commandment is, I want you to take these four blue cords and tie them onto your clothing. And in in the old days, they would maybe tie them onto the fringe of their skirt or the hem of their garment. Nowadays, they clip them on their belt and they obey. They literally obey. And that's good, I suspect. But that's not necessarily the picture. The Lord is saying, among the children of Israel... I want you to, and there's a whole list of things. I want you to put the tzitzit on your garment. I want you to wear the yarmulke. I want you to have a mezuzah on the door. I want, there's, there's a whole series of things in this section that I want you to do. Okay. We can do those things. But just like circumcision, just like Paul said, doing them doesn't save you. But not doing them doesn't not save you the act of doing it isn't the point it's never the point the point is I want you to look different than the other people and that's the same thing we saw with Jacob he's wrestling with the Lord and the Lord puts his hip out of joint so now he walks funny you could see Jacob coming for miles you wouldn't know any other person but you could tell Jacob because he walked funny because his hip was out of joint that's the point we are to walk in such a way that is not like the world that people would know that we belong to the Lord so he gives you these commandments of the tzitzit the yarmulke the the mezuzah there's uh, you know the thing you put on your forehead the thing you put on your arm Okay, but that's not the point. The point is you need to be different. Are you different? And unfortunately, you can't tell a Christian from a non-Christian in most instances, most of the time. Even at most churches. We don't look any different than the world looks. Bumper stickers. Oh yeah, except we have those bumper stickers. (laughs) Well, a bumper sticker is the equivalent of the ZT. It's something that you do. Well, that, that, that doesn't save you. It needs to change your heart. Now, it serves as a reminder. I love seeing the mezuzah every time I come in and out of the house. And most of the houses I go into for work have mezuzahs on all the doors. And I love seeing that because it is a reminder. It's a reminder of who the Lord is. And I know what's inside the mezuzah. And I know what that little parchment says. And it's awesome and if if i never you know if i wandered the wilderness because i was a shepherd and didn't get home for you know twice in two years or something maybe the zit would be important because i'd be able to look and see and that would remind me of who the lord is maybe the phylacteries on your forehead or the the things attached to your arms would be important because it would help me to remember in in our you know today we're never away from our phone or our tablet or anything for more than a few hours. We can remember any time, anywhere, any place, read a verse. We can have our phone talk to us and speak the words of the Lord. We're, you know, we're maybe in a little different spot. But the idea is the same. And the Lord had to write these things uh, thousands of years ago, knowing that these words would have to have meaning for all the generations and all the cultures, for all time. So when we look at the literal, okay, the tzitzit, you know, I'm going to put four cords on my belt. You know, don't get sidetracked by the literal. See what the point of the commandment is. And the commandment is we need to be different. And if it helps to have something tied to your belt or smacking you in the forehead or tied to your arm for you to, to remember to be different than the world, then amen and hallelujah, we should do it. But the bigger point is um, we just need to be different. And that's in everything we do, every every business transaction we do, every Person we meet, we should be people should see us and think to themselves, "Well, that was weird. I don't see people like that very often." And I think it's unfortunate that we have, for the most part, fallen into the same trap the Jews do. They take it all literally, and they t- they're diligent about tying the zitzit, having the tallits and uh, having the mezuzahs but they kind of sometimes miss the meaning behind it. And the Lord wants you to remember the meaning behind it and is not so concerned with the actual physical property. But we do the same thing as Christians. You know, we're Christians on Sunday. Most of these guys come to church, they're Christians on Sunday. And they'll even tell you. We've heard it from people for years. Oh, Yeah, I come to church on Sunday, but I don't let it affect my business. What do you mean you don't let it affect your business? You know, you mean this isn't the way you live? This is the way you live on Sundays? That's that's never the point. So you see all these things, and we we need to apply the point, not the literal part of it, if that makes sense. Um, Deuteronomy 8.10 is one of my favorites that we sometimes do at the Passover. When thou hast eaten and art full, thou shalt bless the Lord God for the good land which he has given you. Jews traditionally, and this is why, Jews traditionally give thanks before a meal like we do and after the meal, which makes more sense because you've just consumed something from the Lord, something awesome. Um, But is that the road to salvation? If you fill in all the blocks and check all the boxes and do all the things and... You know, the Jews have a prayer, a specific prayer, that is recited before meals. And they have a specific prayer that's recited after meals. And it's the same one. They have a whole book of specific prayers for specific things. And that's awesome. But they're all by rote Because that's what you do at this time. This is what you do at that time. And it's the same with us. I mean, it's, I'm a terrible prayer, I'm sure you've noticed. So when I pray, it's always the same. My prayers are not, you know, I'm not a great it's just not, not me. But that's not the point. He wants to get you to talk to him. He wants you to realize uh, what he's done for you. He wants you, to, he wants you to give thanks for the things that you've experienced, that you've learned, that you've done, that you've eaten, that you've been protected from coronavirus, that you have coronavirus. You know, whatever. He wants you to understand that. And uh, this is is the answer to this prayer. I just, rather than me making it up, I thought I'd read it out of scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. And this is, you know, these guys give thanks after a meal and before a meal. This is why. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord, thy God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil and olive and honey a land wherein you shall eat bread without scarceness and that you shall not lack in anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you may dig brass he wants us to remember that everything that happens to us good, bad, or indifferent is allowed by him or provided by him. And he has has laid some of these statutes out, some of these commandments out, that, okay, I want you to wear this or do that or say this so that you can remember his goodness. But the point is never that you do that or this. The point is that you remember his goodness. And we can do that, you know, We, my wife just went to the store, I was shocked to hear the report that there was no parking, that everyone in Eagle was at City Market, and then apparently they were moving in mass to Costco. There was no... And yet, everything we needed was there, and apparently everything everybody needed was there, and they kept stocking the shelves, and it doesn't matter what the world throws at you, God is always there, and He's looking out for you. And it's almost easier for us, in a sense, because so much goes on in our lives. We have a million opportunities a day to see the hand of the Lord. And I'm, and this is probably totally inaccurate, but I'm thinking if I was living 3,000 years ago or, or whatever, life would have been much simpler. Are the sheep still there? Are they eating? Okay, we're all good to go. You know, and maybe they didn't have the opportunities to think about the hand of the Lord a million times a day like we do. There was toilet paper on the shelves. we got it. Well, okay, we don't need any toilet paper. But there could have been because we, you know, but that's the way the Lord works. There's gas in the car. I got to the place. I made it through a hundred times a day, a thousand times a day. I'm guessing each of us thanks the Lord for something or asks the Lord for something. I mean, it's constant. But if you live in a time in a place where maybe you don't have a cell phone and maybe you're just watching a bunch of sheep all day and maybe maybe you need a Talit to think about the Lord all the time. or I, I don't know. But I know whatever, whatever reason he writes these commands, it's not that you do it literally. It's that you get what he wants out of it. He wants you to think about him. He wants you to recognize him. He wants you to see... Um, all these things, a land of wheat and barley and vine and figs and pomegranates, a land of oil, olives and honey where you shall eat bread without scarceness. I mean, that's the story of our lives. We don't we lack for nothing. And when things go wrong, somebody's there to fix it. I mean, who would think you can you can open up somebody's head and operate in their brain? That's just nuts. It's nothing to the Lord. Okay. So we could talk about burnt <clears throat> offerings, and that's one of these biggies. You get to these people that think, oh, the, the Tanakh, it's not right because you can't do that. Okay, well, there's a lot of, a lot of laws that as you read them, you can't do it anymore because it requires a temple. Well, if those aren't true, if you can't do those anymore, then doesn't that cast a poor light on the rest of the Tanakh? You know, maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus did come to destroy the whole thing. Maybe it doesn't matter. And I suggest that's not—that's not at all true. You talk about the burnt offerings. We can't do burnt offering anymore because there's no temple. You can't just willy-nilly cut up a, a bull and throw it on the altar and you know burn it, and all the smoke goes up to heaven. And it—you read about—and there are chapters after chapters after chapters of. Specifically, how you cut the animal up and what animal is for when and all this stuff. But the point is, this burnt offering, the, the sweet savor arises to the Lord. Okay. Well, that's... It doesn't actually say he appreciates it. It says he smells it and it's sweet. And I get it. We've done things that we need to repent of. And the way you repented in the Tanakh was you admitted it and you sacrificed an animal and it was burnt in a particular fashion and the smoke would go up to the Lord as a offering and he would accept your offering and you'd be forgiven. But his heart is that he would never have to smell that because if you didn't ever do something that would require you to repent, there would never be a burnt offering. So sometimes we think of these things as... We get the wrong picture maybe of the Lord up there going, Oh, this is so wonderful and he's really up there going, oh, I'm so sorry I had to smell that. Because mm-hmm. if you just had if you had listened to me and not done that, we wouldn't have had to do this. But you have all these pictures of burnt offerings and people will tell you, Oh, you can't do that anymore You know, my neighbors would get mad. <laughs> but that's never the point. The point is, you know, is is always Don't do those things that require you to do that. Why would you need it? You know, I guess there are some that say, oh, we don't need a burnt offering now. You know, because we don't do those things anymore, right? It's like, what? The planet that you live on. It's probably worse now than it ever was. But that's, you know, you have, you have to answer that. Well, we can't do it anymore. The talk says to do it. What does that mean? Does that mean we're all good now? No. It never meant that. It was always about our relationship with the Lord, and that hasn't changed. It's still about our relationship with the Lord. And if you get all wrapped up in the exact words and the exact pictures, and, oh, the tallit only has to be this big, and the cow has to be cut up exactly this way, and you're missing the whole point. And they did back then because the Messiah hadn't, hadn't come yet. And that was how that was the picture they were drawing. Everything that happened in the Tanakh is a picture of the Messiah mm-hmm. to come. Well, when the Messiah came, it fulfilled that picture. And all of a sudden, oh, and I, again, we'll beat this dead horse. When we get, which I think will happen shortly, very shortly, we get to the point of Malachi chapter 4 or Ezekiel 35 or uh, Paul with his, two trees. We get to that point where the hearts of the fathers turn to the children, the hearts of children turn to the fathers, where the two sticks of Israel and Judah come together, where you've got the natural olive tree and the wild olive tree, and they're grafted together. When when all of these things become one, that's the end. He describes that as the time of Elijah, the time of the end. That's this. It's 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 these offerings. It's is your it's the the circumcision. All of these things. Is your heart right? Is your heart for the Lord? Are you willing to look at what he said and appreciate what he said and do what he said, not with the, necessarily, I mean, you certainly can, with, not with the talit, maybe, but do you recognize that you walk differently? Do you try to walk differently? Do you try to be different from the world? Or not? Do you think you can get by by just tying something on? Or is it in your heart? And I suggest that's what all of these laws and instructions are about. One more that I use all the time. It's Exodus 23, verse 5. And when I quote this, I never quote it completely. But the actual verse says, If you see a donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. And that's one of my favorite, you know, quotes out of the Old Testament. You see a neighbor with with their load, you know, coming off their car, you need to go over and help them. And that's true, and I think most of us would. But this says that someone who hates you. This is a brother who you've had an issue with. And remember, like we've talked before. This, this if you're going to go to heaven and he's going to go to heaven, how is this going to play out if you have two guys that have a dispute and they're now in heaven together. There can't be a dispute in heaven. There can't, that's how we started this weeks ago, I think. You can't hold grudges. There can't be. There can't be any of this in heaven. So you're either thinking, well, he's not going because he's such a jerk, and he's thinking you're not going because you're such a jerk, and yet you're both there. How's that going to work in heaven? It, it, we see this again. If you see the donkey of someone who hate who you hate has fallen down under its load, don't leave it there. Go help him it will help the donkey because it's not going to matter when you get there what you did to him or what he did to you that's all going to be gone you're going to be so overwhelmed by the things of the Lord and what's going on in heaven you will not remember the pettiness and the strife and the bickering and the grudges and the judgments that you have down here so if that's true why worry about it now it doesn't matter He's got an issue. His donkey has collapsed under the weight of his load. Are you going to help him? And the Bible says you are to help him. And this is another one of those things. There's a, you know, that's what the law says. Go help him. There's no room for, well, he's a jerk or, you know, he stole all that stuff. It just says go help him. And the corollary to that is, I would suggest, if you do go help this guy that you hate, and it doesn't mean hate like we think in English, you have a disagreement with this guy. If you go help him when he's in need, I can almost guarantee you what will happen, and you've probably all done this, all of a sudden, it's no big deal anymore. Oh, you know, I'm sorry about that, and you know, thanks for helping, and then everything's fine. That's what the Lord wants. That's what's going to happen in heaven anyway. So you might as well get get used to it and start it down here. Because it will prepare you for what you're going to get up there. So, I don't know. that's, uh, That's tonight's little exercise in the commandments.